Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. I'm Sarah Siders. I'm one of the pastors here at Tallgrass at the Well, and I'm so thankful that you're joining us for this uh, ongoing series called Radical Jesus. Um, We've heard from pastors Josh and Ben and Dave so far in this series where we're learning how to intentionally engage a divided culture, and also how are we even um, addressing divisions within the church and different ways of uh, addressing hot button issues. And so we are every single week uh, raising the heat a little bit, sometimes more than others, uh, to try to understand how would Jesus and how does Jesus call us to engage in this divided moment that we're in. Um, So each week we've been reading a verse together just to sort of set the stage. So I invite you to read that with me. This is Isaiah 48. The grass withers, The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So you've probably heard it said that if you want to have a polite conversation with someone, you should definitely not bring up religion or politics, right? Because they stir up big emotions. Like you can be having a very nice conversation with someone about, you know, weather or sports, And as soon as you shift into religion or politics, all of a sudden you're arguing with someone. It was a very nice conversation before that. And now it's it's all heated. Um, I think whoever made up the no politics or religion at dinner rule, they made it up before social media. So had they done it now, they would have said, and no politics on social media, right? Because wow, has that ever stirred up a firestorm that we could probably not have foreseen. But here we go. Again, part of the Radical Jesus series, we're going to be tackling these topics together, religion and politics. And so, to be honest, I'm not really trying to be polite today, um, but I am trying to be respectful because one of the things that I love about our church community is that there are people present here today who are watching online, who are part of our bigger Tallgrass at the Well community, who hold a variety, a spectrum of political beliefs, and yet we identify as Christian, and that in this day and age is something to celebrate. And so I want you to hear me be respectful, but maybe not polite. So here's the conundrum. We as Americans are more divided than ever in our politics. We know that. We hear that all the time. And yet we are also the least religious that we have ever been as a country. Are these data points connected? Let's explore a little bit. So in a recent Gallup poll reflecting on American religious identity, over the past 80 years, there was a distinct shift that started 20 years ago. Between 1937 and 1998, church membership was about 70%. Now, this is just focusing in on Christians, obviously, but this is also a a reflection of all faith engagement um, in American culture. So church membership, Christian church membership, stayed at roughly 70%. By 2018, those numbers had declined to 50%. And at that point, millennials, only 40% of millennials identified as attending regular worship services of any kind and Um, or or only 40% had a faith, 25% were attending a service. So 75% of millennials three years ago were not engaged in a worship service at all. Meanwhile, the largest growing religious category is people who identify um, as having no religion. They call them the nuns. When I first heard that, I was like, nuns are very religious. What are you talking about? Uh, because I was thinking of like, you know, nuns, the Catholic nuns, like N-U-N. And so I was really confused. So, so just make that distinction in your mind. This is not Catholic nuns. This is nun religion nuns, okay? So 
this marked one of the a major, major cultural shift. And I remember watching this happen because growing up, um, I, was, I was born in the early 80s. And so by the time I graduated high school in 2000, bef- you know, my, my childhood, my high school and previous school years, everyone who I knew was, for the most part, going to church. Um, their parents would take them. I went to a Catholic high school. And so everyone was like, you know, we had mass in the middle of the school day. And it was like, you gotta go or you're hiding out in the bathroom or something. I mean, everybody went and it's just what you did. Um, and I had two really good friends in school. And I remember that um, I was the, pretty engaged in church. I'd found a volunteer leadership opportunity my senior year of high school. And so I was pretty involved. But these two friends of mine who we would, you know, we would go on road trips and we do all these different things together. Neither of them were very religious. They both grew up in, you know, semi-religious homes. And by the time this, that uh, college was starting, both of them had stopped attending church and only one of them returned to faith. And I think that's, you know, that's even like good stats for, um, for what we're seeing with millennials. So this is something that we watched happen um, very close up and personal. And so the, the decision to, to stay connected to faith was actually something that was countercultural even 20 years ago. So at the same time, um, another major shift is happening in the U.S. Americans are sliding further apart in their political beliefs along a spectrum of secular progressivism and moral conservatism, and the levels of division have rarely before been seen. And I don't have the exact quote on this. I've heard people saying that it's similar to civil war levels of division, which is mind-blowing to me and scary because it's like, how did we lose each other, right? Where did we go? At the time of last year's presidential election, a Pew Research study revealed that 90% of registered Democrats and 90% of registered Republicans both felt that if the opposing side won the presidential election, that there would be long-lasting serious damage done to our nation. 90%. Long-lasting harm would be done if the opposing side won. That was a strongly held belief on both sides. You can see that's, there's, it's like we can't see each other anymore. We're not able to understand where the, where the other party is coming from. There's, there's just such an enormous gap. So let's take a moment and, and get a brief look at just this spectrum a little bit in case you're not familiar with the terms progressive secularism or, um, moral conservatism. So on the left, progressive secularism tends to hold little or no connection to religious roots or worldview. It doesn't mean that they don't have morals, but it just means there's not a religious foundation to those morals. Uh, They believe uh, in human ability to improve the environment and conditions of life. They believe in an Uh, an obligation to intervene in economic and social affairs, believe in the ability of experts and efficiency of government intervention, and they hold a commitment to social responsibility and seeking inclusion of marginalized people. So if we think back to the last year, where I'm just going to kind of use examples from the last year, where you're going to see these beliefs uh, playing out. During the pandemic, you would hear a lot of people saying, believe science, right? That's a progressive worldview. They're saying the government and science know what they're talking about. So you should pay attention to them. You're also going to see progressive policies show up when it comes to climate change or efforts towards uh, sweeping social welfare at the government level. So the belief for progressive uh, secularism tends to be the government can solve it. Let's just get the right government in place, the right government structure, the right government program, the government can solve it. On the far right, 
Um, you have, not far, far right, obviously, but on the, on the right, you have moral cons- conservatism, which prioritizes tradition and limited government power, supports religious freedom with a preference for Judeo-Christian values, believes in capitalism, gun rights, and free trade, believes in moralism, a moral universalism, universalism, and defends Western and American culture, and prioritizes rights and responsibilities of the individual over the responsibility to the many. So we're going to see these beliefs over the last year. We saw them um, in the belief that uh, vaccine mandates and mass mandates were examples of government overreach. We also see these in policies that tend to prefer the individual over a, you know, a more large sweeping program. Again, anything that limits government involvement in your life, that's going to be um, more on the conservative side. So in some ways, the belief there is the government needs to stay out of my business, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my thing and the government needs to stay out of it. So what's the connection between dwindling religious devotion and increased political divisiveness? In his Atlantic article, America Without God, author and Brookings Institute fellow Shadi Hamid explains, if secularists hoped that declining religiosity would make for more rational politics, drained of faiths and flaming passions, they are likely disappointed. As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, ideological intensity and fragmentation have risen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. Without religion in the U.S. arranging a set of core shared values, politics has become the new religion. Our country's ideologies are split between moralism and secularism, but neither of them offer solutions to the existential problems that we face that religion used to address. So as we move away from seeing ourselves as American and Christian or American and Jewish, American and Muslim, American and Hindu, now all we have left is trying to define what being American is, and we have science and politics to solve all our problems. That's all we have left. Shadi Hamid elaborates on the very human process that substitutes political activism for religious devotion. The notion that all deeply felt conviction is sublimated religion is not new. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian who served as the prime minister of the Netherlands at the dawn of the 20th century, when the nation was in the throes of secularization, argued that all strongly held ideologies were effectively faith-based and that no human could survive long without some ultimate loyalty. If that loyalty didn't derive from traditional religion, it would find its expression through secular commitments, such as nationalism, socialism, or liberalism. So as our culture becomes more secularized, Americans must channel our convictions and our loyalties somewhere. It is human to believe. It is human to worship. It is human to sacrifice. How do I do that without a faith? I do that within politics. So this world of politics as religion is the world we are all in, and it is the world that we as Christians must engage. But the danger is that we would become so involved within the political schema that we would begin to make politics more than it is supposed to be, that we would begin to practice a form of politics as religion, and it would be kind of a syncretism where we would have our Republican or a Libertarian or Democrat views or whatever it is that we're believing, and we would meld that in with our Christianity. 
Caitlin Shice explains why politics can easily become religion, even for Christians, in her book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. She says, political participation has a unique agility to inspire idolatry in people precisely because it so often promises, it, it so often involves promises of protection and provision, requires sacrifices, legitimizes authority, and inspires submission and worship. So that so we can see that for those of us who are attempting to follow the way of Jesus, we need to continue to make our faith the place where our hope and certainty is found rather than trying to make that happen within our government. Uh, as a Christian, you might be having a different response though. You, may, you might not be like, oh, I, I'm not relying on government. I actually think government is a total failure. I mean, I'm glad there's not anarchy, but this is a hot mess and I want nothing to do with it. And you might be feeling some sense of political apathy. Or you might feel a sense of moral obligation to get involved. You might say, yes, it's a mess, but I need to do something. And so you, you want to get involved. You want to be politically active. And so you decide, I got to go all in. I got to be all libertarian. I got to be all Democrat. I got to be all Republican. I'm going to go to all the things. I'm going to give them, I'm going to tithe to the Republican Party. I'm going to tithe to the Libertarian Party, Democrat Party, right? And the church, right? But I'm going to be really involved and I'm going to, I'm going to do my part to make sure that America is a great nation and continues to be a great nation. Um, <clears throat> but because our faith is ancient, it transcends the political environment that we are in today. And so we have to work against these automatic reactions of idolizing government as the solution to everything, disengaging completely, or getting so involved and aligning ourselves perfectly with one political party. To be a Christian is to be an engaged activist and politically homeless. So how do Orthodox Christians engage politically? I like to suggest that we need to make a series of intentions in our engagement between other Christians in the body of Christ and in our broader culture. So the first intention is that no matter where your political affiliations lie, guard against idolatry. Because this has been happening for, for all of human history, um, people have always been tempted to treat their governments as God. And we see that in, um, in certain more authoritarian governments around the world, they're, uh, they're, they have, maybe have a monarchy or they have a totalitarian government or dictatorship where their president or leader is seen as divine, right? I'm not even going to drop names. But I'm just saying, we know who they are. And we all go, that's crazy. That's so crazy that they think that's a God. But really, we've been doing this forever, right? Because think back to Caesar, Julius Caesar. He was viewed as a God, right? And so Jesus said in 13 words something extremely disruptive in his time when he was approached about taxes. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, Give to God what is God's. Wait, Caesar's not God? Right? He was blowing the whole thing up in 13 words. Because that's what Jesus likes to do. Jesus is not polite, is he? So he takes Caesar and he puts him in rightful place. God is God. Caesar is Caesar. God is God. The American government is the American government. And God is the one who puts these things in place, allows them to be in place but they're not God. So in his first letter to early Christians, the apostle Peter tells the church something similar in how to engage. He says, submit yourselves 
for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Does that sound like all of social media? Okay, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. He's, again, making that distinction for us. So when we fear God and honor the emperor, when we fear God and honor the government, our allegiance being first to God and then to country, it takes the pressure off because then we are not subject to the anxiety that says, if we'll just pick the right government, it'll save us. If we just pick the right government, everything will be okay. Remember that quote that I, that I shared earlier about why it's so easy for politics to become an idol because there's a sacrifice involved, right? There's a promise of protection and provision Those are the things that God does for us, and yet we often give our governments the the sole responsibility for those things. But our salvation comes from Jesus, and in practicing the way of heaven, we are to use all means, including but not limited to government, to see heaven become more of a reality here on earth. So when a government or political party is considered divine, here's here's one of the other issues. It often subverts self-critique. It doesn't see the problems within itself because it needs to maintain a sense of like purity, right? Or, or almost like a, a political holiness. And it, all, it might also roundly condemn an opposing view without recognizing its strengths, right? It might say, this is all good, this is all bad, okay? And obviously that's not how Christianity works. In her book, Jesus and John Wayne, Christian author and professor of history at Calvin University, Kristen Cobas Dumay, tells the story of white evangelicals during the civil rights movement and their conflict between fighting racial injustice and holding the belief in America as a Christian nation. She said many evangelicals found it hard to accept that the sin of racism ran deep through the nation's history. To concede this seemed unpatriotic. Having embraced the idea of America as a Christian nation, it was hard to accept a critique of the nation as fundamental as that being advanced by the civil rights movement. This growing secularized culture on the left tends to want to diminish the role of faith in in influencing the founders of our country. They want to say, we've never been a Christian nation. That's never been a part of it. In fact, we've actually been terrible right? We stole land from native people. We enslaved African people. We are terrible, right? And so there's almost this like the, the call out, right? Not to say that, Ameri- that they don't like America, but just to say, hey, we really need to be aware of our roots. We really need to be aware of where we've come from and how much damage we've done, right? And so they almost want to say that there was no Christianity involved there. But The truth is, is that Christian ideals were a part of establishing religious freedoms um, and and liberties in honoring human free will through a plurality of ideologies and religious practices, right? So that's a Judeo-Christian value to give everybody free will and to let them practice that. So we must retain our right to critique, critique wrongdoing and uphold justice wherever it is found, even and especially in our own backyard. 
We do not look at our own political party or our own church, or our own family. We are not as Christians allowed to just turn a blind eye and say, because these are my people, I'm going to have an exclusive loyalty that says everything they do is okay, or, I, or at least I don't, I pretend that it is. And everything that these people do is bad, right? Because if we're going to guard against idolatry and keep God in his rightful place, then we have to be willing to address wrong and we need to be willing to honor and celebrate right where we see it across the political spectrum. So the second intention, embrace the tension of both social responsibility and personal accountability. So as we saw on that spectrum of uh, secular progressivism and moral conservatism, we tend to see social responsibility more on the left. I have responsibility to all these people who are impoverished, who are marginalized. And the other is, I have responsibility to myself, right? I have to, I have to take care of myself. What about me? I'm, I, you know, to, to master myself is the greatest, uh, the greatest achievement, right? I need to, to uh, be responsible and accountable to myself. And the thing is, is that it's both within the Christian faith. We don't pick one or the other. A version of the conservative moralist rhetoric among the political right is the bootstrap gospel, okay? And you will hear this almost as a Bible verse. Have you ever heard people say, God helps those who help themselves? And they're like, you're like, where is that in the Bible? It's not, okay? It's not in the Bible. And if you're, maybe you're, uh, you know, newer to faith or you're exploring or you're not sure where you stand with God, but let me just tell you, God helps those who help himself. Someone made that up. I don't know, but it was not one of the writers of uh, the Bible. So what happens when, when we believe this um, on the political or moral right is that when someone is struggling, when someone's in poverty, when someone has an addiction, when someone has an issue in their life, we're like, well, that's your fault. Personal accountability. That's on you, right? And so it's their fault and we don't have to intervene. So this was a popular belief in Jesus' day that when someone was suffering, it was their own sin. In John chapter nine, uh, this belief showed up in a conversation Jesus was having with his disciples. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? Because obviously someone sent. Who was it? Give us the juice, Jesus. Okay? And he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. When we see someone struggling more than us, the, the moral conservative right has taught us to believe that that's a character deficiency. And in the story of Jesus, we see that he shows up not with judgment, but he meets the need. Right? He steps into the moment not to say, Oh, look at you. Okay, and, and there's another example I'll share here in a minute. But he is not bringing judgment, he's meeting a need. The reaction to personal struggle among secular progressives tends to be the opposite, where the problem of an individual is the responsibility of everyone in the system. So if someone has an issue, if someone is making a mistake, if someone has an addiction, if someone is in poverty, if someone has relational issues, mental health problems, they say, look at the system, that's why they are like that. And it, what happens is that actually strips that person of agency to be able to do anything for themselves until the system changes. So you can see how that isn't a full truth either, right? So Jesus shows up in the middle. He recognizes systems of oppression and intervenes in the death sentence of a woman that was caught in adultery, right? Right? 
Do you remember this story? The story as a woman makes me crazy. Okay, so a woman who was caught in adultery gets dragged into the town square. She was caught in adultery by herself? Was she in adultery all by herself in a room? Okay, and so where's the guy, right? We don't, we, we don't know. He, he was apparently fine because he was the guy. I don't know. But obviously Jesus recognizes that there's only one out of two people that were involved. That's a system of oppression. So he walks up to her and he says, well, first of all, he asks anybody else who's ready with with a stone, they're gonna stone her, right? And he says, hey, any of you who have never sinned, you go ahead. You throw the first stone. I'll wait. Okay? And the guy who has no sin is saying that. He could throw the stone, but he doesn't. One by one, everyone leaves. He walks up to her and he says, go and sin no more. Okay? So he steps in, he intervenes in the system, and he holds her personally accountable for her actions. Right? That is the way of Jesus. But when the man at the pool of Bethesda, he's been sitting at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. This also just makes me laugh. People are just people forever. They're all the same, right? We are all the same. So this guy sitting there, he's crippled. And Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be well? And the guy doesn't say yes or no. He just says, well, every time the angel comes and stirs up the pool, somebody gets in ahead of me. So I can't ever get in and I can't ever get healed. (laughs) It's like, I didn't ask you why you're injured. I just asked if you want to be well, right? And so then Jesus, he doesn't say that. I don't know if he's thinking that, okay? But he just says, pick up your mat and walk. So the guy's trying to blame it on the system. And Jesus is like, you pick up your mat and walk. And he did, right? So the third intention, be suspicious of divisive talk hold more than one interpretation, okay? So in a recent Pew Research poll following the last election, 90% of black Protestants voted for Biden, while 84% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. Whoa, what's up with that? Aren't we reading the same Bible? Aren't we following the same Jesus? Why does it look so different? Surely they, whoever they is, right? And this is just one microcosm. I didn't even get into other um, ethnic uh, minorities and and their voting patterns because I didn't have time to do that. I wanted to do that. Um, But isn't that interesting, just that one division, that one divide, okay? 84% and 90%. So our experience of race in our country affects how faith and politics play out. So white evangelicals tend towards preserving traditional marriage and right to life, uh, issues related to the unborn, and they're looking to the church, not the government, or faith-based organizations to solve issues of poverty or quality of life or social welfare or injustice. 
They think the church should be doing that. Black Protestants, while also pro-life, and they tend to be largely pro-traditional marriage, are experiencing insecurities in their health and safety on a regular basis. And so they're looking for a party that is making statements and efforts to create more equity and opportunity for them and further the civil rights for those who have already been born. So they have a ton of similar religious beliefs, but the way their politics play out is different. So are they both wrong? In some ways, they're both right. But the third way of Jesus includes the rights of all human beings, born and unborn, and seeks justice and righteousness for all of them. We don't get to focus on one issue to the neglect of all others when it comes to justice and righteousness. Practicing the way of Jesus in politics means thoughtfully holding these intention. And I just lost my place. We can go to the fourth intention. Just a moment. The fourth intention, engage those who have differences from you with wise and compassionate curiosity. I thought this was really interesting. There was a a research, Pew Research study between Democrats and Republicans, and they were discussing um, in this poll what they wish the other side knew about them. And as a therapist, that always kind of breaks my heart. You know, when people don't feel understood. It's like, I just wish people understood this about me. 25% were saying they wanted an opportunity to talk about their values and be heard for what mattered to them. Interviewees also talked about knowing that despite differences, there was still common ground to be found. And they asked that the other side refrain from using negative stereotypes to summarize and disregard their views. Have we ever done that? Have we, are we guilty of that sometimes, right? So somebody across the aisle from us, they want to be heard and seen as a person. They want to be understood for the reason why they've arrived at the values that they have. Maybe they're not crazy. Maybe you aren't crazy. But we need to start, as Christians, we are the ones who initiate conversations of compassion and wisdom. We're the ones who say, hey, let me hear from you how you arrived at that conclusion. What is it like to be you in the United States? Tell me about that. Give people a chance to be heard. Build a relationship that goes beyond just trying to get to agreement or conversion. Build a relationship. Let them be a person. And and maybe you'll get to be a person on the other side of that too. The fifth and final intention. Politics is not the only way to engage. Voting is the bare minimum. And some of us don't even do that, you guys. It feels really hard, right, to know. We have a school board election. We have a city commission election coming up. And it's like, oh, gosh, I don't know what to do. I was just talking to to Josh about this the other day, you know. All these, I was like, okay, if this block of voters or this block of candidates win, it's going to be, we're going to be really tighten our buckles because they tend to be very fiscally conservative, right? And if this group wins, then we might have a really interesting spectrum of of outcomes, maybe some more uh, social welfare type things, um, uh, you know, initiatives coming through, and and then different priorities with spending, okay? uh, Progressives don't always, I, I live in the economic development space, I run an entrepreneurship center, and 
Um, so sometimes people who are progressive want to prioritize spending around social welfare and not always on economic development. <clears throat> but people who are really conservative don't always want to spend money on economic development either. So I need some job security. Um, I'm going to be voting for job security. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'll be voting for the good of our community. You should also do the same. But, but, but voting is the bare minimum. And you know what's so interesting is that when I was going around canvassing two years ago when I was running for office, um, so I would, you, you have this um, list that you can pay for that tells you like who has voted in the election. So you just drop into a neighborhood and then you go to, uh, you stop by the homes that have voted in the last like two elections. So they'll get a green if they vote in every election, a yellow if they voted in like one or two of the last, and a red if they just never vote. Okay. So um, it, it was, it's very interesting to see these levels of engagement and what you notice is that most people are voting in only the presidential elections. Um, so as you're just walking through a neighborhood, you can see, and I know this sounds really invasive, you're like, oh my gosh, candidates can see this information. Yes, but also you gave Facebook your face. So like now they know what you look like, okay? So like if you don't want the government to know these things, you're gonna have to like move to Montana and go off the grid. Um, but, but, you know, it's like uh, the people view these presidential elections as being the most important, right? Remember that, that poll, 90% of Republicans, 90% of Democrats think if a president that's not in my party wins, they're going to screw the country over, right? That's terrible. But it's actually local government that affects you the most. It's your county, it's your city, and it's your state, and so that's where you need to be the most engaged, and most of us are not. Um, so each of these areas of governance requires us to engage with compassion, wisdom, curiosity, focused on social responsibility and personal accountability. We have a lot of work to do as Christians, holding all these things in tension, okay? So let me share just a, a few next steps here. Um, as, we're, as we're facing outward, beyond ourselves, I know this is hard work, but as Christians, we don't get to just, may I say lazily, pick one side or the other and just kind of turn our brains off. We don't get to pick one issue or another and turn our brains off and just vote straight down the line. You guys, that's not the best and most accurate representation of what Christianity looks like in our daily lives. So, the first step that I would like you to encourage you to take is use the lens of compassionate curiosity when you're talking with someone with whom you disagree. Let them get the experience from you of being heard. Because again, people are always feeling like they're on the defensive, right? If they believe that marginalized people are being oppressed, they have to defend that. And if they believe in their own individual rights and they don't want the government getting all up in their business, they have to defend that. But aren't those both like genuinely positive and I would say even American ideals, right? We wanna be able to figure out how can we hold these things in tension. And part of that is to understand how somebody who's different from us in their political views, how did they come to that? belief system. And, and they're going to tell you a story. 
They're going to tell you about someone in their family. They're going to tell you about their own experience. And that's how they arrived at that conclusion. And you're going to realize that they're not crazy and neither are you. The second thing I'd like to recommend as a next step is to let the tension of responsibility to your neighbor and accountability for yourself be your compass in the voting booth. Notice I'm not telling you what to do. We have an election coming up in uh, like a couple weeks. I don't know the exact, you know, first Tuesday, right, of November. But think about how can I be, how do I in this, in this moment with the power that I have in the voting booth, here locally, because when I vote locally, it literally affects my actual neighbor. It affects the people that I go to church with, the people I work with, the people I'm in class with. Okay? Everybody around you is affected by your vote. So take it seriously. Think about the good of your neighbors and accountability for yourself. And the third is engage and transform multiple forms of government, right? So that is a school board election. That is our city and county commission. But that's also the, the economic development and regional strategy that's going on with Engage MHK. If you Google Engage MHK, there's a five-year strategic plan going on right now. I don't know how many of you have been tracking this, but this is about the values of our city and how are we going to live those out? What does our city want to be about for the next five years? Have you looked at this plan yet? Have you looked at the Engage MHK plan? And, and have you given some feedback? Because they're taking feedback right now. What do you think about it, right? So get involved because your opinion does matter. And something I've found about our community is that if you want to be an influencer, you can be. You can have as much influence as you want because we're a small community. So if you want something to change, get involved. Okay. So we're going to um, share the Apostles' Creed together here as we wrap up. And um, then we're going to be receiving communion together. So just a quick uh, tutorial about uh, communion. We're going to uh, go down this aisle and just make sure that you're coming up. So however you do it, however you enter this aisle, we're going to come up this aisle here um, and receive the bread and the juice together. So will you say the Apostles' Creed with me? We're going to have the worship team come on up um, while we're doing this. So I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask you to heal our nation, to heal divisiveness. Lord, let it start with us. We want to see widespread healing, but we know it has to start with us individually in what we say, in how we think, in how we vote, in what we post online, in the media that we consume, in the voices that we allow to influence us. 
God, when we can feel anger and fear rising up in us because of what we're reading and seeing and thinking about and talking about, Lord, maybe that's not you. Maybe that's a moment of idolatry where we're making government into something that it's not meant to be. We want to fear God and honor the government, not the other way around. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would cause us individually, each of us, to be transformed and that you would create a movement of people from our city, from our state, who are Jesus followers and who are seeking to pursue understanding and connection through wisdom and compassion. Transform us, heal us, in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.